It's Thursday, May 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. What will the new normal look like for the economy once the country opens back up fully? In some ways, the post-COVID-19 economy will look a lot like the one that struggled to recover from the 2008 financial crisis. After an initial rebound, there will be slow growth and high unemployment. Households will save more and spend less as they continue to worry about health and finances, and more small businesses could close their doors. Rich Miller, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for the new normal for the economy. Next, on February 23rd, 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed in Brunswick, Georgia. While out for a jog, he was confronted by Travis and Greg McMichael, and Ahmad was shot twice in the chest with a shotgun. There has been a growing concern that the case has been mishandled by both police and prosecutors. The case is now on its fourth prosecutor, and the Georgia Attorney General has asked the Justice Department for an investigation. It took 74 days for an arrest to be made. Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the Into America podcast, joins us to talk about Ahmad Arbery's case and organizing in the time of coronavirus. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They're going to husband their resources a little bit. They're not going to take big bets on new businesses, except maybe if they're in pharmaceuticals, of course. And they're going to be looking to sort of shorten their supply lines, cut back on how dependent they are. And then governments are going to be doing the same. Joining us now is Rich Miller, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Rich. Thank you, Oscar. We're all looking forward to when the country opens back up and we can get back to normal. But unfortunately, the new normal 2.0 for the economy looks like it could be pretty long and not really ever get back to normal, at least in the short term. Growth is going to be really bad. Inflation is going to still be low. Unemployment could stick around with us at these high levels for quite some time, maybe not at the exact levels that they are now. But after this initial rebound that we expect to have once businesses start reopening, it's going to be a slow comeback. Rich, tell us a little bit more about that. I think we're going to have is kind of what I call a just-in-case economy, right? Everybody's going to be looking over their shoulder. Everybody's going to be defensive. So as you say, after we get sort of an initial bounce, you know, when everything opens up after being shut down, consumers are going to be wary. They're not going to go to restaurants right away. They're not going to get on subways or metros. They might save a little more money, not spend as much. I think companies, too, are going to be a little in the just in case type. They're going to husband their resources a little bit. They're not going to take big bets on new businesses, except maybe if they're in pharmaceuticals, of course. And they're going to be looking to sort of shorten their supply lines, cut back on how dependent they are. And then governments are going to be doing the same. We already see the Trump administration talking about we've got to produce more of this PPE here at home, etc. So, I mean, you add it all up. And as you say, it's kind of an economy that's kind of really lackluster because nobody's really gunning it, right? Everybody's kind of looking over their shoulder, hunkering down a little bit, a little shell-shocked from what happened. And it's going to take time to kind of shake that off and get our groove back, I think. Let's talk a little bit about businesses and unemployment. We've seen a lot of layoffs coming. There's already 20 million Americans that have applied for unemployment benefits. Uber and some other big companies have also just recently laid off more people. And the longer this thing is going to stretch out, the more companies are either going to start downsizing permanently, go out of business. And I think uh, from your article, there was a note here, 
3.5 million small businesses could close their doors in the next two months. And beyond that, in the next five months, 7.5 million could close. This is all dependent, obviously, on things rolling out super slow, but that's really bad. So on that front, the businesses aren't doing too well, and that's also going to contribute to more unemployment. A lot of these small and medium-sized businesses, they run on pretty thin margins, all right? It's not like they're making a lot of money, and they don't have all that much money in the bank to withstand basically losing all their business. But even when they come back, how many restaurants are going to be able to pay the rent, pay their employees when um, they're only a quarter full? They can't be more than a quarter full and they have to swab down all the menus and make sure every table is six feet apart. These companies, a lot of them don't have the money, especially these mom and pop places. Some of these people are running it out of their credit card. They don't have big bank accounts or anything, or they're borrowing from their family. And that's a fair number of people. And as you say, unemployment is maybe going to get up to 20% or more, and maybe it'll come down quick to 10%, but then it could hang out at that, you know, and that's like three times what it was in February. Another big hit, obviously, Tourism has taken a huge hit. Delta Airlines said that it might take three years before they can see any type of recovery from the pandemic. People that are looking to buy a new car dropped close to a 10-year low. These are all big industries that are going to take a long time to ramp back up. And it's not only big industries. Some of those, those industries, as you mentioned, employ a hell of a lot of people. Tourism is now a big deal. Leisure and restaurants are big deals in terms of, you know, they're very service, the service sector very labor-intensive type industries and companies. And, you know, that just doesn't bode well. And unfortunately, it's the lower-income people who are really feeling it. The Federal Reserve had a statistic, I think it was like 40% of people earning under $40,000 have lost their job. I mean, that's incredible when you think of it, 40%. Some of them is obviously going to come back, but the fear is, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell was talking about this, the fear is that this is going to be, you know, a long, hard slog getting back to where we were. Tell me a little bit about the supply chain, because we hear a lot about that, but businesses are going to have to take a different approach to this, where before, you know, obviously they're looking for very cheap things in the supply chain so they can make their own products. Now they might be having different considerations, other sources, more domestic sources in America as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the watchword now seems to be, you know, uh, more on resilience than on cost. And, you know, that's fine. And that that's, you know, that's, as I say, just in case. That's a good. But it means that, you know, a company is going to be making less profits, right? It's, it's going to be making less profits than it was before. And if it's making less profits, it probably means it doesn't have the wherewithal to pay its employees as much money or hire as much employees. So, you can see why the companies are doing it. And it maybe, you know, in the long haul, it's maybe a good strategy. But in the short term, they're going to get a hit to their profits. And, and again, they're going to be defensive spending on other things, including wages, including expanding the business. Well, I mean, the shutdown happened so fast for the entire country, yeah. but the road back looks like it's going to be quite long. So we'll have to yeah. see how we get there and hopefully we can get there as quickly as possible. Rich Miller, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. Appreciate it. Everybody who that is selected as a juror wants to do the right thing. But what is the right thing if my buddy is charged with a crime? Do I really want my buddy convicted? Joining us now is Tremaine Lee, 
MSNBC correspondent and host of the Into America podcast. Thanks for joining us, Tremaine. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Wanted to talk about one of your latest episodes from the Into America podcast, and it centers around Ahmad Arbery. On February 23rd, 25-year-old Ahmad was taking a run through the neighborhood there in Brunswick, Georgia. He was shot and killed by two men, Gregory and Travis McMichael, uh, father and son. When they confronted him, uh, as the story goes, they said that they suspected him to be responsible for a string of robberies in the neighborhood, something like that. But Ahmad was running through the neighborhood unarmed. There was a confrontation. We have cell phone video of it. He ended up being shot in the chest twice with a shotgun. And it took over 74 days for Travis and Gregory McMichael to be arrested. Obviously, we're going through this pandemic and it's crazy times, but this is just kind of another string of events that is all too familiar for us. Tremaine, tell us a little bit more about what happened with Ahmad Arbery. Obviously, there are so many more questions than we have answers. And as cliche as that is, we really don't know more than what we've seen. We don't know exactly what happened right before the shooting, but from the video, it's troubling and concerning and clear that Ahmaud Arbery ran into this father and son duo, now charged with murder. And there's a lot of speculation around whether he was, in fact, a quote-unquote jogger or was he a quote-unquote burglar. There is no evidence to indicate that Ahmaud Arbery was involved in any kind of criminal activity leading up to the moments when he was shot and killed by the uh, McMichaels. As of right now, what we see is what we get. I mean, I think what's troubling to a lot of people is that it took 74 days for any arrest, for anything to happen. But there's also another series of events playing in the background. We're now on our fourth prosecutor, our fourth prosecutor in this case. And so the first prosecutor who said that he believed that the McMichaels were acting legally and justified in the shooting because they say they were trying to make a citizen's arrest. And then once Arbery they say attack them, then they were standing their ground. They had a legal self-defense motivation. But he had to recuse himself because he was an old friend of one of the shooters involved in the case. Then you had a second prosecutor who also had a relationship with the elder McMichaels, who served as a police officer for 30 years. Then you had your third prosecutor. And then just earlier this week, the Georgia attorney general appointed a fourth prosecutor. And so this police department is now under heightened security. Uh, heightened scrutiny, I should say. There has been this long history, uh, apparently, of cover-ups, some other scandals involving various police issues and cover-ups. And so right now we're kind of just at the tip of the iceberg because it's been 74 days between the actual shooting and the arrest. And here we are still trying to put together the pieces. And in the meantime, the attorney general is also launching an investigation into the handling of the case from those prior two prosecutors, the first two. So this is a mess, Oscar. It really does seem so. And I guess, you know, as we're going through this coronavirus pandemic, things have been shut down. It's just crazy times on that front, but it really shouldn't excuse some of these missteps and just kind of how long this has taken to be looked into. You were talking about some of these prosecutors who had to recuse themselves. He's the circuit district attorney, George Barnhill. On his way out, he even said, you know, as you mentioned, that the McMichaels were totally within their right. They had solid firsthand probable cause as civilians to detain him, even though he was just jogging around, he wasn't doing anything. They said that they sought to stop and hold this criminal suspect until law enforcement arrived. That's one of the questions that I had. Did they ever contact law enforcement when they were following him? Did they do that before? Were they going to try to capture him first and then call the cops? How did that play out? 
According to the reporting, there had been a number of 911 calls made to the police before the shooting. And from the transcripts of the call, you hear the person receiving the call saying, the dispatcher saying, well, what crime is being committed? What is happening? And you hear there's a black man running through the neighborhood. So part of the thing seems to be, uh, and as I get to with Reverend Al Sharpton on the podcast, this long history of vigilantism and the criminalization of black people, but black men in particular. So when they're already arriving at this moment with the perception that this man is a criminal, that this man is a burglar, but even if there is other video of what appears to be um, Ahmaud Arbery walking into this home under construction, even from what we've seen, there doesn't appear to be any crime that's been committed. Certainly not right. a felony, certainly not one that warrants the death penalty, <laughs> certainly. And in that video specifically, Ahmad walks in. He's only in there for a few minutes, it seems like. The homeowner has come out and spoken out about it, said he didn't see anything illegal happening. So who knows, obviously, what was going on. But he just seemed like curiously looking around in there. Like you mentioned, really nothing illegal was going on other than trespassing, possibly. But that doesn't amount to any of this. And we've seen this play out time and again, where there's Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and a bunch of names that the public has never heard of. A lot of times, especially when it's either the community, law enforcement, the suspects, you start developing a defense for the shooters already. So this must have been a criminal. There's some other video that doesn't even appear to me, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm just a journalist covering this stuff, to be Ahmad Arbery. It looks to be some other gentleman, but they're already posing this thing that don't call him a jagger. He was up to no good. And so trying to pick through all of this, either way, we end up with a young man dead who most would say wouldn't have deserved to be dead, even if he had been trespassing. We obviously have a lot of way to go in how this will all play out. But one of the defense for the McMichaels is that they were trying to do a citizen's arrest. How does the citizen's arrest law work in Georgia? From my understanding, the law states that a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. And just even with how they have presented all of this, that didn't really seem to be the case. You're missing a number of key points in there, right? They, they, what they're missing is it wasn't in their presence because there was no crime apparently being committed or in their proximity. So from the very beginning, supporters of the Arbery family and critics would say that you don't have a legal, any legal ground to stand on. But the first prosecutor said that they actually do. The second prosecutor said the same thing. So the legal waters have already been muddy from the very beginning. So now there are calls for the Department of Justice to investigate this case. You have the state attorney general calling for an investigation into the handling of this case from the beginning, because again, by the letter of the law, they're missing a number of those points. For the podcast Into America, you did speak to the Reverend Al Sharpton for his thoughts on how this is all playing out. The first question with regards to your conversation to him, how does the black community feel when something like this happens again, when we do have video evidence showing the altercation. Obviously we don't have a full picture of what happened before, but how does the black community respond to something like this? It's hard to say the black community, right? But we say collectively black folks have experienced a lot of pain and trauma, not only at the hands of law enforcement, but also neighbors and vigilantes and folks going way back as the Reverend Al Sharpton makes note of, from the original slave patrols where folks were deputized and there was a responsibility. If you saw someone who you even perceived to be a runaway, that you apprehend them. So to see young black men, especially, it happens to black men and black women, but certainly to black men, we've seen the bodies, we've seen the bloodshed and that collective pain, that weight, it's almost as if 
how much is going to be too much? When is enough going to be enough? But there's also part of the conversation is this idea of allyship in moments like this. And justice will play out how it will play out, right? It will go through the court system. The prosecution will be what it is. And we'll see how the chips fall. But in, in the big picture of allyship, and you see the big 10 of the Democratic Party, and black folks are the base of that. You think about the LGBTQ community, which enjoys some intersectionality. You think about the feminist movement, which enjoys, again, some intersectionality in terms of race and gender. But when it comes to these shootings, it almost seems like the black community is left to fend for itself and fight alone, whether because people often don't believe the people who are presumed to be suspects or whoever they are, the victims, they believe that maybe they were doing something wrong or just can't understand how they ended up dead if they weren't doing something wrong. And I think there's a presumption here, even from folks who see themselves as being on the right side of the justice conversation and the right side of the equality conversation. There's always that other thing there, which has been baked into our American conscience and threaded through every aspect of life. And that's the criminality of black people. You criminalize the body and you can pass laws. You can allow it to manifest politically in certain ways. And it's worked time and again. And so I think if there is any voicing of a collective, it's that folks are weary. 2019 celebrated the 400th anniversary uh, of 1619 when the first enslaved Africans were brought to these shores. And we're still tangled in the mess created by all that. Right. And there are no accidents. And so I think it's, it's troubling. And then usually it manifests in some sort of public protest and organizing around putting pressure on individuals or institutions be it politically or, or the police and law enforcement institutions. But how do you protest? How do you movement build during COVID-19 when right. it's unsafe, perhaps unhealthy to gather? And that's what I want you to speak a little bit more about, organizing in the time of coronavirus. This really didn't take off until that video came out. There was no arrest until 74 days after this. And throughout of this, we're experiencing all these stay-at-home orders. People can't really get out. And you can't get that type of media coverage, which unfortunately a lot of the country needs a lot of times to be able to be exposed to something like this. How do you organize during these times? Well, the Reverend Al Sharpton, again, who is a veteran organizer and has been doing this stuff for a very long time, said that, you know, organizers have to be nimble and you have to be creative and you have to take that pressure online. And so where in, in years past and times past, you might have dozens or hundreds of bodies in the street marching along outside the governor's office. You have to turn online. And he made, he made one point. He said, you know, during the fallout from the killing of Trayvon Martin, he said they organized the protest, which is a big protest of 10,000 people. Just last week, they held an online forum with some of the attorneys involved in the Arbery Creek case and others. And they had 100,000 people tune in. 100,000. And so while you won't have the traditional protest organized in the streets, you can organize them the quarters of the internet and online and push it that way and use social media. So now you don't have the feet marching, but you can still put pressure by organizing online. And they have no choice now. It was already building in recent years, but now because of COVID-19, they have no choice but to push in that direction. Well, there's still a lot yet to be seen in this case. The prosecution won't be able to present evidence to a grand jury until the state Supreme Court's uh, coronavirus restrictions are lifted on June 12th. So there's still going to be a lot happening in the Ahmad Arbery case. Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the Into America podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.